This week on the pod, we discuss Brendan Bolton's make-or-break month, talk mature age recruits and the mid-season draft, explain player ratings points, and Jake takes aim at the biggest club in football. You're listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. My name is Matt Walsh, going to host uh, the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast today. Uh, Jake Michaels has joined me. Jake, how was your weekend? Well, shocking if you just look at the the Blues game in isolation, wasn't it? You were on the couch too, sick on Sunday, I believe. I was. How are you feeling now? I had the pleasure of watching it. Still still pretty crook, I must admit. It's Um, a bit bit of a shame when you can't get off the couch physically to stop watching that game, hey? Just want to turn it off. Just throw (laughs) the TV out the window, to be honest. Champion data's Christian Jolly. Welcome along. How was your weekend? Yeah, it wasn't too bad. I uh, I only lasted 10 minutes of the Carlton Giants game, switched over to Hawthorne Richmond and refused to turn back. (laughs) Well, I was was at a wedding uh, during uh, that that game and I think I watched the first five minutes on my little Foxtel Go app Blues kicked the first goal Harry Mackay yeah. looked good I thought hello we're on here I was it was not going to be a good wedding guest it was like the North Melbourne game I think uh, Jack Silvani took a mark uh, yep. and I thought gee we're on here <laughs> uh, and then uh, things deteriorated pretty quickly and red wine certainly became a better option <laughs> Neil Seawang how are you? I'm very well yeah interesting weekend I, I loved what Richmond are doing with all their outs um, we're going to discuss a few of the, the big losers of the weekend, um, but uh, I really like what Richmond's doing, and, and they might be a, a real smoky. They're uh, back in contention, aren't they? Yeah. They've been sneaky good the last few weeks. They I mean, have, we no haven't... one's really spoken about them, but they're exactly. now equal fourth. Like Literally, I think they're fifth technically on percentage, but their percentage is exactly the same as Brisbane's, who are fourth. Uh, six and three, flying under the radar. And, and look at all the players that come back that's in. Right. Well, and now Dusty's hitting some form as well. Um, I mean, the Tigers are, look, top four isn't really out of the question, I think, for the Tigers. Yeah, amazing effort. Uh, in terms of the broader ladder, though, does it seem set? I mean, the, the top eight looks pretty good. The only team outside the eight at the moment that I can see making it are the Bombers, just, I think. Possibly. They're, they're just scrapping these wins together at the moment, aren't they? Yeah. Melbourne? Think, no. no We're done on Melbourne? I think if Melbourne had have got it, they played quite well um, against West Coast. Um, strangely, it was probably their best performance of the year, even though they lost. But if they had a snuck over the line there, you'd, you'd maybe think they would mm. generate a bit of momentum, but uh, I don't think they'll quite make it. Um, the other one is Brisbane. Now they're two games inside the eight. Are we all confident that they'll they'll stay in? I think yep. they'll be there at the end of the year. I think of the three teams that are just outside, for me, it's Frio, Essendon, and Hawthorne. I could probably only see Essendon challenging the other eight. I think, mm-hmm. to me, two weeks ago, the top eight looked a little bit confusing and I wasn't sure what to make of it, but I think it looks pretty set this week. I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I could see that top eight heading into the finals. Isn't yeah. it? So, so um, talking about Fremantle and Brisbane, they play each other in Perth this weekend. Um, and there's two games that separate Fremantle and Brisbane. So if Brisbane can snatch that, they're suddenly they're three games inside the eight. Seven three. It's a, yeah. it's a good start for the for the Lions. But I think you're right. I think the Geelong, Collingwood, and GWS in that top four, and then the Lions. I'm not quite sure if they can make top four. I think that might be a stretch for such a young side. But then below that, you have Richmond and West Coast kind of duking it out, um, maybe for that fourth spot. And then you've got Adelaide and Port, the two South Australian teams, both on five wins. So. I don't know. I think it's starting to take shape, and the Bombers have a lot of work to do if uh, if they're to make the finals. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's uh, move on to our first segment. It's time for three on three. Uh, Jake, do you do you hear that noise in the background? It's the jungle drums beating uh, for Brendan Bolton. Another bad loss by the Blues. Fifteen goals, and uh, some parts of the media were very quick to. Uh, lose a lot of the god the goodwill that Carlton built up from the Collingwood game the previous week and from the win over the Western Bulldogs a few weeks before that and suddenly Brendan Bolton's job is in jeopardy do you subscribe to those theories well i mean you kind of have to look at it the whole season and and particularly the last 3 weeks and say well 
I guess he kind of is. Um, his position is um, in jeopardy at the moment. But like I said uh, a couple of weeks ago about Alastair Clarkson, not not to not to knock him, but it's like. Who is going to make much difference with the current group of players and what, what he's got to work with? Not to defend Brendan Bolton, but it's like, what do we really expect? Of course, we expect more effort, and to have two horrific performances in the space of uh, three weeks is really disappointing, whether it's a young side or not. But I don't see, I don't see a knee-jerk reaction changing things and being the, the right approach for Carlton at this point in time. Playing devil's advocate, I, 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 I think there's danger in backing the wrong horse for too long as well. Though um, I'm, I can't tell whether Brendan Bolton's the right man for the job. I don't know who would be the best fit for the Blues if they did make a call on him. But uh, looking back to as a Melbourne supporter, looking back to the Mark Neal era of Melbourne, there's a lot of goodwill towards him for most of his journey, and then it just became just too apparent because the wins and losses were just getting so far apart. So. Not that I'm saying Bolton's the wrong person, but there is a risk of backing the wrong horse for too long. Well, the Blues have gone down the path of maybe the knee-jerk path, like you said, Jake, before uh, with um, Brett Ratton. When they, they sort of got rid of him, they'd had a few injuries that year. They'd made the finals the year before, but um, they took a step backwards uh, in 2012, and, and then they, t- they turfed him for Mick Malthouse because there was a better option on the table. I don't think there's a better option out there at the moment. No. I think, it, ironically, the best option out there might be Brett Ratton. Uh, and who knows if, if he's uh, keen to come back to a club which turfed him out uh, relatively unceremoniously. But look, I, th- I still think, I've, I've always said, the Blues would not move on Bolton during the year. I think you can only move on a coach these days. I think the industry has matured to a point now where you can only move to uh, on a coach at the end of the season when there are options available to you in, in terms of coaching. And I don't think there is an option out there who will come in straight away and replace Bolton. But this next month is crucial for the Blues. Mm. Uh, St Kilda... Essendon, Brisbane, and the Western Bulldogs all in Melbourne. Uh, St Kilda especially. Uh, at, at the moment, Jake, Carlton are giving up pick one to the Crows. Uh, and St Kilda might be another team in that bottom four that uh, is sort of at the crux point of being, you know, could they finish bottom of the ladder? But the Blues need to beat teams like St Kilda uh, and the Dogs again in a couple of weeks in order to sort of save face on that. Yeah, and if you take the, the North Melbourne, I mean, you don't want to be doing this picking it this season, but if you do take the North Melbourne and the... Um, Giants game out. Carlton's been in every other game. You know the the Blues have had a chance to win all of their other games, and being back in Melbourne now, I expect them to be, you know, to get a to get a nice bit little whack after after really poor performance and some some players to come back in as well. But also, um, yeah, uh, you'd expect them to respond and be in the next three or four games because, as you say, they're they're winnable games. Christian, where do you where do you stand on the on the Bolton future? And I know that you had a, a fair bit of frustration coming into our pre podcast yeah. meeting this morning. Yeah, no, so I'm with Matt. I don't think I don't think a club should move on from a coach during the season. Um, the only probably reason you would do that is if you're completely losing the players. And there's no way for us to know from the outside how Bolton and the players' relationships going. From all accounts, it's pretty good, and there's no breakdown there. So you wouldn't move on from him during the year. But I am questioning, how long can you be patient with him? Um, I was quite surprised to see this. So he's won 16 games in his four years at Carlton. Six of those were in his first 11 games with the club. So he had a 6-5 and five record after the first 11 rounds. Uh, and that's since dropped to 10-54 and 54 since then. So, I mean, it's, it's Shocking, the graph really, is not yeah, heading in the right direction. Pretty. The only thing is, I mean, you can sort of see how this narrative plays out in the end. Uh, he leaves, someone else comes in. 
the the list matures to the point where it's going to be maturing, and all of a sudden the new coach is the hero. Whereas Can you tread be, water for long enough to well, get that, that opportunity to, to? That's what I think yeah. the board and the president uh, are kind of hoping will happen. I think Mark Lejudice was uh, interviewed by Mark Robinson on the back page of the Herald Sun this morning, and basically said that it was always going to be a long process. And this is the thing because it's it's. You know, it's unlucky for a coach like Brendan Bolton if he did get the sack. It's like, well, he's there for the hard time. You know, no one's expecting him to come in and be, you know, make finals or win a flag in the first few years he's there. He needs time to 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 establish a, a playing group that can actually win regularly. And the subplot to this, you mentioned it briefly before, is that the pick swap, the controversial pick swap last year, which now as it stands, um, Carlton have given away pick one. I I, I would that that's got a lot to play out because we we want to see how Liam Stocker progresses. We want to see who's who's the number one pick. Is he going to be a fantastic player, a generational player um, that some suggest? But the emotional blow of finishing last and then not getting the number one pick, that, that's going to be tough to take for Carlton supporters. I think the Blues were always going to trade out their first round pick uh, regardless if, if they um, got rid of it last year or this season. But I they think wouldn't have thought it would be pick one. No, they probably, they probably didn't, but that's the, the risk you sometimes take. Uh, it was a risk, yeah. It, it, it was. Uh, but at the end of the day, they've got, for, for whatever pick it ends up being, if it's pick one or pick four or pick five, uh, they have, they've got two players. So, yep. I mean, you can't... Obviously, we're speculating because it's we're only nine rounds in. We need to wait 10 years to see how these players turn out. Oh, that's, that's, it, that's it, isn't it? Um, um, we probably should move on. Uh, we've uh, talked about the Blues enough. Uh, piece of audio caught out is last week. Uh, Neil, I know you were pretty big on this. Frio coach Ross Lyon basically said it was up to the players to take initiative uh, to kick more goals at or after training. We've got the audio here. It's up to the players to actually show some initiative outside of the AFL PA, the collective bargaining agreement. And there's only so many hours can have them. And Look, I looked out the window the other day. Jesse Hogan was in on his day off having shots at goal, going through his routine, kicked straight on the weekend after the week before. So it's really about player initiative. The interesting thing about those comments uh, was this it was last week. And then Jesse Hogan went on and kicked one goal four in uh, Fremantle's loss to Essendon. So that's a bit funny. But Neil, a club spending enough time... And we discussed this previously, but a club spending enough time on goal kicking? I mean, I think the short answer is no. I mean, I, I think Ross in his comments is probably having a little bit of a crack at the um, the AFLPA's... Um, CBA. Uh, CBA. Mm. Um, but Ross, it's your job to get the best out of your players. If you're not, If you're trying to tell your players to come in on their days off and spend time after training um, to practice their goal kicking, I mean, that that's all fair and well. But your main job is to get the best out of your players. So how about you You actually, in your football program, spend 10% more, 20% more time on what is probably the most important skill in football. I mean, looking at, looking at individual sports, you know, the tennis players that practice their serves for hours and hours and hours at a time so they can hit that serve in, in match point, or the golfers that um, that spend so much time putting and making sure that they can nail that putt. It's really important, those, um, those, I guess, easily improvable skills if you spend enough time on them. So why aren't footballers doing it? And why don't clubs put that as part of their, their program? Yeah, I'm not, uh, again, not sure how much uh, time clubs are spending on goal kicking, but I do find these comments quite weird, um, considering they were made before Hogan had kicked one four. Frio have the fourth best set shot accuracy going around the competition anyway, so there's not too much issues there uh, for Ross Lyon to worry about, I wouldn't have thought. So here's a funny comment. Um, the one thing that, you know, most scary for the competition is Collingwood are actually 18th for set shots. So if you want the Collingwood <laughs> players to actually go out and practice a little bit more, they're just going to get, you know, three or four Run goals more ahead of, ahead of the competition. So, uh, Well, I mean, look, Frio kicked 7-11 on the weekend. So 
Ross's comments are kind of interesting considering that they were so poor. And it was one of the worst games I've seen under the roof of Marvel Stadium, just quietly. Third lowest winning score at, at the Dockland Stadium. 60 points the Bombers kicked. Um, but that's another story. But Hogan, one goals four. Uh, Danaher, zero goals four. Josh Begley, zero goals four. I mean, these blokes need to be, wherever it is, they need to be having more shots at goal. They do. I, I touched base with um, a senior player um, a few weeks ago when accuracy was on the agenda, um, and and asked him, you know, what is going on with um, with so many players missing seemingly easy shots at goal? How much do you actually put into it at training? Um, and he said, basically, we get a few shots in between drills under fatigue, and then uh, there's a ten to fifteen minute craft time before or after main sessions for for every player. So that to me seems like it's almost an afterthought and we've also talked um to a couple of um club uh, staff members as well and and they've they've mirrored what what this senior player um said as well so it seems like it's across the board it's not really that paid that that strongly paid that much attention to um at training which I, i find quite staggering yeah well if it is across the board then that's just not good enough is it well, no, because if you think about it, 10 to 15 minutes um, at the end of training, mm. you're not just practicing your kicking, you're practicing your whole set shot routine. For someone like Ben Brown, that's a 45-second routine. Uh, you know, you average it out sort of 30 seconds per player and they're going through their routine. 10 minutes, it's not it's not a lot of shots at goal. It's 20 kicks at goal. And, and if you're having five shots from one spot on the ground and five shots from another, I'm not just... I'm not quite sure where the improvement's going to come from out yeah. of that. If you're a forward, you should be you should be practicing for at least an hour every day, shouldn't you? Yeah. Well, and look, and I think you're, you're right, Neil, in saying that uh, the collective bargaining agreement uh, is restrictive on how much time the clubs get with the players, and maybe that's a thing. But maybe for specialist goal kickers like full forwards who don't do as much running and conditioning, you take uh, a bit of the time that you would put in a main training session and just have them kicking goals because yeah. they're not going to be running 15, 16 Ks a game. It is interesting. We, we always speak about it in the offices at Champion Data, and I think I've mentioned it on this podcast as well. It is the most underrated stat in football. So you can picture how much work they're doing on setups and zonings and things like that, but you look at it, kicking goals or kicking straighter at goal wins you game. So why they're not practicing more, I don't know. I think getting back to your point, um, what you just raised, Matt, I think if a club was brave enough to say, we're going to cut back on on the running or the structures or um, the you know the game plan, if you like, we're going to cut that back by 5%, 10% and really maximise our goal kicking and um, and do all that. I think that, that could actually be a huge plus for a club that's brave enough to do so. Wouldn't the clubs be better off saying, okay, when you come to, to training, we're going to practice an AFL skill like kicking for goal. And when you're on your day off, run. Run as far as you want on your day off and, and get your conditioning up there and keep fit. But when you come more... to the club, that's when we're going to be doing drills. Or at and least actually, a better balance of the two. Doesn't that make yeah. a bit more sense? Well, players are all like getting brunch and playing Fortnite these days on their day well, exactly. off. Exactly. <laughs> um, anyway, we should move on. We are, we are pushing on for time. But the mid-season draft is coming up next week uh, and there have been no shortage of success stories of blokes who were overlooked in making it at AFL level before coming in uh, sometimes years later and making a good impact. Who's been one of the best mature age recruits of the last few years, Neil? I I love the mature age um, success stories. I mean, not every mature age player comes in and and plays well, but I I love the, I guess, the the more unusual journeys, not just going straight from the under-18 competition. Um, So I think uh, Geelong have got two state league success stories. Tim Kelly's a really obvious one. I mean, he's top five player in the league at the moment. Um, He was playing Waffle a couple of years ago, and I love the story of um, Tom Stewart as well. He was playing local footy a handful of years ago, Stepped up to VFL footy, starred at Geelong's in Geelong's VFL team, and now he's probably an All Australian defender again. He he's he's been amazing. So I love 
these guys that that show that much commitment and they don't get it the easy way and they and they come in and, and really play well. Yeah, I reckon um, not someone this year, but last year, Brody Mychek for the Pies. I mean, so impressive. Um, you know, to be uh, a defender, I think he was, mm-hmm. um, and then to come into the Pies into the forward line, and he's kicked forty-four goals in twenty-five games. I He'd mean, be one of the first picked each week at the Pies. He would, and he, he, like we were talking about goalkeeping before. I mean, he's one of the. You probably wouldn't put him in the top two hundred players in the AFL, but gee, you'd be pretty confident if he's lining up uh, set mm. shot. Um, and one from a few years ago um, that I know that Christian you, that you um, kept a close eye on is Dane Zorko. Um, can you talk us through yeah. the way that you looked at him before he was even drafted? In yeah, so we just before Gold Coast came in, so Champion Data, we do a lot of uh, the state league and recruiting games. We got a big batch in about from about 2007 to 2010, just as Gold Coast were coming in, of a lot of Queensland games, of local games. Uh, I don't think it was, it was a quaffle back then, not the kneeful. And I, I did a fair bit of them, and I kept seeing Dane Zorko just dominate. Every game we ever captured Dane Zorko in as a kid, he would dominate. You could tell he was the shortest bloke on the field, but he was kicking the ball 50 metres as a 17-year-old. You know, other kids around him couldn't kick 30 metres, probably. Uh, I, was, I was always big on him, and I was so rapt to see him. When he finally got his, I think his opportunity took maybe three years, three drafts, he got overlooked before Brisbane gave him a chance, and he's just been in, and he's probably been a, an actual superstar of the competition yeah. since coming in. And... um. Just expanding on that, I mean, he's the he's a co-captain at Brisbane. Uh, there's three captains in the AFL at the moment that were taken as mature age recruits. Ben Stratton was taken as 21 21-year-old out of the waffle. Dane Rampey was a co-captain at Sydney, was a mature age recruit. And Dane Zorko as well. So there's definitely a lot of success stories across That's the That's unreal, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, this this uh, next week we've got the mid-season draft. So do we have any standout prospects that might get picked up uh, on Monday? Yeah, so... I've looked at, there's, with the mid-season draft, there was 307 nominations of people around the country nominating for the draft. 249 of those have actually played in state leagues or um, in you know, NAB league or anything across this season. Uh, so looking at those 249 players, I've sort of just gone and picked out the stats. I haven't tried to match anyone to any club or looked at club needs or anything like that. I've just sort of looked at, all right, who are the best in you know all the, all the different areas? So one name that just comes up straight to the top is Jai Bolton. Uh, he's playing over in the Waffle for Claremont. Uh, he's 27 years old now. He was on Collingwood's rookie list, I think, back in 2011. So he's been in the system before, didn't actually get to debut. But uh, across the last four years in the Waffle, he's won two of the last three Sandover medals on top of that. But the last four years in the Waffle, he's fourth for total disposals, second for contested possessions, second for clearances. And he's also ranks in the top 20 for tackles and score assists. So if you're looking for a midfielder that's going to come in and play by round 11, round 12, you can put him straight in there. Mm. He'd be at the top of my list. Um one thing that we do have coming up, um, talking about trying to match uh, the players available to club lists, we've got our draft expert Chris Dore um, has has taken a detailed look at each club um, that has a spot open and, and the players available. So it'd be interesting to see if he matches Bolton to, to any of the clubs and, and some of the other players that have caught your eye as well. Yep. So um, with mature age recruits, again, talking about some of the ones that, you know, one of my favourites this year has been Marty Hoare. Um, closely followed by Sam Collins, the thing that they both have in common. They're both defenders. Uh, mentioned Ben Stratton, Dane Rampey as well, being picked up as mature age recruits. I think defence is really one of those areas you can shore up with, um, with a you know a mature age player. And one of the best in, around the country, again, coming out of the waffle, is Michael Sinclair for Perth. Uh, he won their BNF in 2016. Battled a sort of Achilles and uh, I think it was like a thumb or a wrist injury last year in 2017. But this year he's played every game. He's 10.2 intercept possessions per game. So that's winning the ball off the opposition. Mm. He's number one in the waffle and number one of the 307 nominated players yeah. that we had in the draft. So if you're looking for an interceptor, he's more of a general size defender. Uh, he's not a key defender. 
But yeah, as I said, the last two seasons, he rated elite for disposals, contest possessions, marks, intercept possessions. So he's, he's your ready-made sort of floating halfback. Get Only 25 years old. Yeah, get him in. Only 25 years old too, so a bit of footy ahead of him, you, you must think. Yeah, correct. I think, again, it's right on that borderline. It seems to be a lot of the mature age recruits it's taken by about 23, 24. So mm-hmm. whether the 25 is red flags for clubs or not, we'll find out um, in a week or so. Uh, a couple others. So, again... Be, the thing that interests me with the mid-season draft is what type of players will be picked up. So will we see a whole lot of of these, you know, um, Michael Sinclair, Jai Bolton's, the 25, 27-year-olds, you're choosing to put in your team this year and they're ready to go? Or are we going to see clubs start picking up some of the guys that just missed out on last year's draft? So a couple some of those... Of the younger guys. Yeah, so yep. a couple of those that are standing out is Kyle Dunkley, who's uh, Andrew Dunkley's son and Josh Dunkley's brother. Uh, he just missed out on the draft last year, uh, mainly due to injury for most of the season. He's uh, averaging 123 ranking points in the NAB League, which is, I think it's right up in about fifth or sixth in the competition. Uh, as a midfielder, he's averaging 18.5 disposals, 1.3 goals, 8 tackles and 4.5 clearances. So from those numbers, he just looks like a, a big body, ready-made midfielder. Sounds like a clone of his brother. Yeah, correct. But, I mean, he is still only 18 years old. So whether you take him, he might not play a game this year, but he could, you know, in two or three years' time really start to blossom. Um and another one that's just a slightly a bit older, but again, another father-son sort of pick, Tyler Ruse, who's playing for Southport, uh, Paul Ruse's son, uh, playing up in the NEFL. So he's averaged, he averaged 27 disposals last year, and he's up to 30.5 this season. Um, he had 1.1 clearances per game last year in his first season in NEFL. It's up to six this year. And 1.9 tackles per game last year, up to 4.5. So he's really improved. Uh, he's, always been, he's always been thereabouts and on club's radars. Uh, but I think, yeah, the improvement that he's shown so far this season could hold him in good stead. I, I love the uh, initiative of, of at least being able to bring these people in mid-year rather than having to wait till till November. So I rate it. Yeah, I love it. And well, I, think I mean, it's... supporting the Blues, I know that at the moment one of the big uh, missing pieces is a, is a small, a genuine small forward. I know we've tried uh, Mick Gibbons, who was a, another mature age recruit, but he was a midfielder at uh, state level. Are there any small forwards that can make so, an impact at the Blues? Yeah, so I've, I've used the media for this one. So the one that's been linked to Carlton is Sam Lawson. He's got good numbers. I mean, he didn't jump out as me when I was sorting uh, for general forwards and things like that. About 2.3 goals per game. He's been playing for Coburg for the last three years. Um, three and a half tackles per game. You know, he's kicked 14 goals in the VFL this season. He's second on the competition. So I think he'll go uh, number one. And just with your three votes last year, I think you'll like his hairstyle. He's sort of got the big dreads <laughs> that he almost... Uh, puts in a ponytail with the dreadlock wrapped around it so um, you might enjoy that gee whiz the other, thing, over the other, the other thing I have noticed with him is he's played 29 VFL games for 4 wins and 25 losses so, so he, he might, might fit right in he would fit right in at the blues <laughs> <laughs> alright uh, on that note I think uh, we should move on how about stat with champion data earlier we did touch on how the blues uh, are quite struggling at the moment uh, they copped a 15 goal hiding on the back of Patrick Cripps being tagged right out of the game so we thought we'd take a look at the gap between each club's, or a club's, best and second best player and explain a little bit more about the player ratings points that Champion Data uses. So Christian, what can you tell us about each club and how closely linked their first and second best players are? Yep, so I'll start with what we're using to measure what your best player is, and that's player rating points. So it's basically a measure we introduced in 2011, um, and it's it's sort of like an equity rating of a game. So where you're getting the ball, where you're moving it to, how valuable that is to the team. So it really takes into account uh, both sides of the ball. So your, your pressure and tackling, whether you're you know applying enough pressure and turning the ball over from the opposition or what you're actually doing with ball in hand. So we find it's a pretty good measure. The points usually stack up to how much you're worth on the scoreboard. Um, 
So in saying that, so if someone kicks long and um, gets an uncontested guy in the goal square, the guy that kicked it might get six points because he's got the ball to a six-point uh, part of the ground, a, a ground, a part of the ground where you're most likely to score six points. If that guy then goes back and kicks a behind, obviously only one behind, one point goes onto the team scoreboard. But the guy that kicked it doesn't get screwed any points. He still ends up with his six points for moving it there. So it's a good measure of sort of it doesn't sort of necessarily impact. Correct, and it doesn't necessarily take into account what happens after you're not involved in the play. It Other just people at, stuffing yeah, up exactly <laughs> what, where you got it to. Uh, so we found again using it since 2011. We're pretty happy with the measure. It's a pretty robust measure. So to, um, to give our um, listeners some context on, say, the top 10 players in the league right now, yep. just I guess it proves that, that the elite players are ranked where they should be. Yep, so this is using total points. So Paddy Cripps is number one in the competition, and we'll speak about him more in a minute, at 173 points across his first nine games. Second in the competition, Lockie Neal. Third is Max Gorn. Fourth, David Mundy, who's having a ripping yeah. season. Fifth, Nat Fife. Sixth, Bonson Pally. Seventh, Sloan. Eight, Tim Kelly, who we mentioned before. Nine, Cunnington and ten, McRae. So a lot of midfielders in that, but again, they're the different type of midfielders. You can see the difference between Cunnington and McRae is you know, the way they play is um, vastly different, but they both sort of stack up and become good rating I mean, players. that top ten is not out of place, is it? That, not at all. You've got no, ten no. elite players. When you look at the, the what the Brownlow favouritism, Jake, I know you can follow you'd, quite, you'd pick quite your closely. Brownlow medalist out of there, wouldn't you? Mm. Probably. So when you look at Cripps, uh, 173 points. Who's who's? What's uh, the next best on? Sorry. Uh, 170 for Lockie Neal, so only three points behind. Only three points behind. Yep. But if you looked at Carlton's second best player, where would they be and who is that? Yep, so we've got Zach Fisher for total points at 108 for the season. So that's 65 points behind Paddy Cripps, and that is the biggest gap between a first and second ranked player at any club. So I've gone through every club and sort of looked at uh, the gaps between your first and second best player. Carlton clearly the biggest gap. Cripps at 173 uh, and Fisher at 108. The next biggest gap is between Lockie Neal and Dane Zorko. Lockie Neal being at 170. Dane Zorko is still at 126, so he's still scoring 18, has scored 18 more points than Zach Fisher. And then the third... Just to um, butt in there, that's, that, 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 what you've just mentioned, the gap between uh, Cripps and Fisher, 65, and uh, Neal and Zorko, 44 points. The gap for the Carlton players is almost 50% bigger than the, than the gap of the second biggest discrepancy. Does that say more like. about how good... Paddy both, Cripps is, or that there's not a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, think it's both. Fisher's big... score, it's, it's higher than some other club's highest scoring player. So it's not like it's... I mean, Paddy Cripps is well up there. Fisher hasn't had a, a, an excellent year, but he's still performing better than some players on, on this list that we're yeah. going through. Go back to what Jake said. I think it is shows... It, Patrick Cripps is the number one rated player in the competition, so it does sort of pumps him up as well as sort of saying, yeah, there is a big gap at Carlton. Mm. Uh, so looking, going up the other end of the ladder and looking at who's got the smallest gap between their best and uh, second best player. So St Kilda's got that at the moment with Seb Ross at 105 points and Jack Sinclair at 104. So nice and even between those two. Fremantle, as we said before, Mundy's uh, fourth in the competition with 156 points. And just behind him is Nat Fife on 154 points. Only two points different there. Um, the interesting one for me is... Third biggest, uh, third smallest is McAvoy and Henderson at Hawthorne. There's only five points between those two. But of the um, 36 top two ranked players or top two rated players across the competition, only two of them are key forwards. And they're both from the same club. So the two highest rated players at Giants are Jeremy Finlayson, who we've actually got as the number one rated player at the Giants, which is a huge surprise. But mm. Having a good year, though. I mean, it, having a great year. Exactly that. Just, yeah. Come out of nowhere, but has yeah has been consistent in all nine of his games. He's at 117 rating points this year. Cameron is second at GWS at 112, so only five points different between them. They're the only two key forwards to rank in the top two at their club. So, 
again, it just makes GWS a little bit more scary. Their, their, their midfield is clearly their strength, but their two key forwards are <laughs> so clear ahead. The amount of, of talent at that joint is just... Just unfair. It's, just yeah, it's a good spread. Every of week we, and everyone we talk about a new best Giants player. <laughs> so just moving further on from that, so you always hear about um, a team's bottom six or a team's top six players, and you know it's one uh, of your favourite phrases, Matty. It certainly is. If your <laughs> if your bottom six is changing every week, or if your bottom six is no good, you're no good. Yep. So we sort of um, had to work out, put out together, and try to quantify what a bottom six is. So what I've done is I've looked at your your team that's played uh, on the weekend or you selected 22 from a weekend, just your six lowest-rated players in each team. So your six lowest players might change week to week, but it's just an average score of your bottom six players. So Collingwood, when they select their team, their worst six players have a total of 51.5 rating points between them. That's number one in the competition. Going all the way down the other end, West Coast bottom six players only sort of add up to 33.4 rating points um, across the season, and that's the worst. So you could say... Collingwood has the best bottom six, and West Coast probably has, you know, the worst bottom six. I can see, I can see in that West Coast list of bottom six players one name that really doesn't deserve to be there, Andrew Gaff. He is the player ratings outlier. So he (laughs) he is one that we discuss in the office all the time. Again, so player ratings, there's there's very little. little, There is no human intervention. It was said in 2011. We um, how did it come about? So it was actually, um, I'll give a shout out to uh, Carl Jackson, or Dr. Carl, as he's now known. He did a PhD based on this. So his PhD coming out of uni was to work out how to rate a game of football and players within that game. Um, so he's basically what we, as I said, it's an equity value. So every part of the field has a different value to how, how likely you are to score next from that point, in, uh, point on the field. So that will change slightly each season as the game changes and he'll update those numbers. But other than that, we don't, we don't mess around with the numbers. We don't decide that a hit-out's worth more here because we feel like it is or a contest must worth more. We sort of plug the uh, numbers into the computer and it spits out what it does. Again, 99% of it we're wrapped with. Andrew Gaff's one that we debate every week. Have um, you got a theory on why Gaff's the outlier? Yep. So it's rating points is really looking at who's getting the ball to each person. So receiving an uncontested possession is just not valued as highly as actually winning that initial possession and getting it to him. So obviously Gaff is very high. He's got a contested possession rate below thirty percent, which is probably you know is quite low. Um, and I've looked at the one hundred and thirteen players with a contested possession rate of below thirty percent, and his kicking efficiency ranks ninety sixth of those. So a quick snapshot of him is mm. he's getting a lot of open ball, but he's not hurting you by foot. So that's probably why he doesn't um, stack up on the player ratings. And he's also his score involvement. Again, player ratings big on the scoreboard. Score involvement is his below average per game. So he's the only player in the competition to rate elite for disposals, but not at least average for score involvement. So just not getting that impact on it's the It's funny because last year everyone said that about Tom Mitchell at Hawthorne, and this year a lot of people said about locking Neil at the Lions, hmm. that they are accumulators <laughs> and not good users. But I think that's you know, no one ever really throws Gaff into that conversation. Yeah, and again, having Neil so high on the player ratings, yeah, he, wins, mean, his own, he wins a clear. lot You look at what he does, ball. I mean, he sets up half the goals. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at the number one club with the best bottom six, does it come as any surprise that it's Collingwood who are no, in that, such good form? The, the list depth they've got, I mean, I guess they had that last year. They were decimated by injuries and still were within a kick of winning the grand final. Mm. Now they've got the majority of their list healthier. I'm not, I'm not surprised that they've got the best bottom six. Mm. Port Adelaide next, Richmond third, Brisbane fourth. I mean, you can see why these teams are where they are on the ladder because clearly their they're last six players picked each week are performing at a good standard. Yeah, and just going down the other end, so the bottom four are Gold Coast, Sydney, Carlton, and as we mentioned, West Coast. So again, three Eagles sort of struggling teams. I mean, Rioli only came back in this week. Um, Vardy got towed up. Gaff is the outlier, as you say, and yep. and Petricelli and Hutchings, maybe they're not 
big impact players on a on a rating system, but they are decent role players. So Bef- maybe that's why they're down there. Before we wrap up on this topic, quick, um, I guess, philosophical question. What's more important, top six best players or bottom six in a club success? Bottom top, six. Top six. I'm looking at this table and it's sort of saying bottom six. I'm top six. So Jake and I versus you guys. <laughs> All right, let's move on. I've had a gutful. So we came into our pre-podcast meeting and uh, we were discussing what the segments were going to be and what we discussed in each segment. Uh, and then Jake sort of had this sly look on his face and I sort of asked him, I said, what are you going to have a rant about this week? And he said, I don't want to tell you. That's going to be a surprise. So none of us here know what he's going to be ranting about. Jake, take it away, please. Yeah, and let's keep it that way. <laughs> I think I've discovered the most overrated thing in football. <laughs> This is more overrated than Alastair Clarkson. It's more overrated than Charlie Curnow. It's even more overrated than Game of Thrones. I've got three letters for you guys. M-C-C. Wow. I know you're a big MCC man over there, Matt. But I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm a member, yes. You're a member and you're always uh, bragging about getting to go to the MCC. But I tell you what, I've been to the MCG, I reckon, 100 times in my life. And on Saturday, I went to the MCC for the first time. And to say I was underwhelmed is the understatement of the year. Talk us through it. So not only do you have to wear the college shirt, I, I think, I, I'm looking around now, yes. I'm not wearing a college shirt right now, <laughs> but, which isn't a big deal, but it's funny because you look around at everyone in there and you think if you lined every single male up in the MCC, you wouldn't say the common denominator is that they've all got a college shirt on. I think it's just kind of like an elitist thing that, is so unnecessary. If you really want people to look good and dress up, then make it a proper dress code. Right. A collared shirt, silly. Um, so you get in. You, you queue up for ages to get in as well. That's the other thing. Yes. You get in, go to the bar. Yes. Two beers at the bar. Yeah. Carlton Draft and the MCC Pale Ale. Not going to get a Carlton Draft, so get the MCC Pale Ale. Disgusting. It was undrinkable. <laughs> I couldn't drink it. It was so disgusting. It is full strength, at least. It is full strength. In but glasses. I'd, ra- I'd rather drink something that's that tastes good. And the other thing is, you couldn't even take it to your seat. They won't pour it into a glass, and uh, into a plastic cup and let you take it to your seat. I never knew that you can't drink a beer at your seat in the MCC. So, Jake, we take it you're not going to put your name down on the waiting list? There's no way. <laughs> I, I can't believe it. So, you have to go out no, of the no, MCC. The MCC. <laughs> you have to go out of the MCC to get a beer in a cup, a mid-strength beer, as you say, and then you can't even bring that back in to go and sit up in the stands at your seat. No. You've got to get in, in line at the Schooner Express. Or the... Is, that, is this always been the case? It's always been the case. I can't believe that. But the I'm padded stunned. seats make up for it. The padded the seats. The padded seats. <laughs> but are they even padded up the top? No, not no. at the top. They're not? No. Only on level two and three. I don't tell venture you very far from level two or three, though. And you have to you have to reserve a seat, like get there early. So I think we got there like an hour before the game and you couldn't get... And this was the Collingwood... Um, St Kilda game which was you know there was a fair turnout but it wasn't like a full um, arena <laughs> and you still can't even get a seat like on the bottom deck you got people reserving about 50 seats with about 30 scarves putting over. the scarves over the seats I mean yeah. give us a spell and the other thing is um, it's not exclusive How they make out like it's this exclusive club you gotta wait 20 years to get in and yet anyone can get anyone a ticket on any given day pretty much Nah, I tell you what, if I, queue, if I waited 20 years to become an MCC member, I'd be very, very disappointed. Well, well I guess we won't be seeing you in the MCC. Well, I know you're, soon, you're a bit of an elitist over there. I'm on so. the list. <laughs> I think I'm heading there in a couple of weeks uh, for the yeah. Essendon Carlton game. I've got a function Don't forget on, your college so. shirt. Oh, no, I won't. I'm actually... Get there I, early. I have to wear a suit because I'm going to the long room, so... Oh, look at you. Must well, be said, how, how different is the experience between sitting in the outer and going to the MCC 
like the the even just trying to go with beer like the the atmosphere in the MCC is quite um elitist is probably the wrong word but then you go to the bull ring after a good win and it's just an animal house in there down in the oh, bowels of the MCG yeah. it's such a different way of watching footy all the all the shirts are untucked the RMs have <laughs> scuff marks on them it's it's crazy I don't reckon it's much different though <laughs> it's just people and the other the, the bars in the MCC were so packed and this is again for a for a, for a full, full strength game. beer <laughs> for a full strength beer no fair, fair rent nah not right. having a bar of it well uh, I, I don't want to go back I won't be seeing you there then in no. that case let's move on and the three votes goes to... Um, I don't know if, uh, if anyone else has taken notes uh, too closely of the uh, Sir Doug Nichols Indigenous Round, which is coming up, but some of the Guernseys that have been designed are amazing. Beautiful. And each year, they all seem to be getting better and better, and I think it's become a staple of the round and a staple of the fixture. And to have uh, designers from footy clubs, so some some of the players have designed, I know Quinton Narkle designed Geelong's one. Um, the players up at Brisbane had an input as well into their Guernsey. They are awesome. And I'm honestly about this close from clicking by on the Cartman one, which is one of the best, I'd say, Jake. Every year, they uh, everyone kind of says, oh, they look great. And they g- generally do. But I reckon this is the first year I've looked at all of them, or all the ones that I've seen and thought, Everyone looks really, really good. Um, the Geelong one's my favourite. The Geelong, one Geelong one's Geelong my favourite. Geelong one looks really, really cool. Yep, they all tell a story yeah. as well, and they all mean something to the, the club. Yeah, done um, a great job. And so, all the clubs do a good job of promoting them and, and promoting the story, as you say, Neil. That's right. And just talking about um, uh, Sir Doug Nichols' round, uh, question without notice, who's the best current-day Indigenous player? Oh, currently playing? Currently playing. Oh, currently so Eddie Betts, is, uh, what he has done for the game has been magnificent. Uh, buddy, buddy for me. I think obviously he's not playing right now, but I think he's clearly the best at the moment. Yeah, I'm with Jake, buddy. Yeah, and I'd say uh, Buddy and Betts, and then I reckon on the podium would be Sean Burgoyne as well. Well, considering he was almost out of a job when he got traded from Port to Hawthorne with mm. those knee issues, the way he turned it around and became such a vital part. Yes, I agree. Um, we do have to move on. We are running short of time. Neil, I know that you've got some interesting footy tip stats. Of course, the footy tips app and footytips.com.au. What can you tell us heading into this week? Yeah, so uh, round nine out of 650,000-odd um, tipsters, we had uh, uh, 840 people who, who tipped nine and got the correct margin, which was uh, a pretty fantastic effort. The average score from round nine was 7.1, um, and the total average after after nine rounds across all competitions is uh, 46. Um, so I think that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Yeah, um, I I know uh, just to uh, blow my own trumpet is uh, I'm one above the average, so I can now say that I'm uh, above finally average got tips. Above. Finally got above. <laughs> you, you, you got it. You're above the line now. <laughs> I feel really relieved about that. Um, but what caught my eye was um, we've compiled a ladder of the percentage of tippers that always tip their team through round nine. So these are the people that tip with their head every single time. Rather, uh, they tip with their heart rather than their head. And we've got Collingwood up at um, 52%, same with Geelong just under them, and then a big gap to Adelaide. But what caught my eye is there's 7% of Carlton fans and 4.25% of Gold Coast fans that tip their clubs every week without fail. What are they doing? What are they doing? What a waste of a tip. They're giving away about 20 20 tips. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But that's the debate. That's the old debate. I guess loyalty is a big thing and and you you want to support your team, but... uh, you know, you're just giving away. If you want to actually win a competition, you're not going to do it. If by you want to support that. your team, be a member, go to the game, but you don't, don't tip, tip them. them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and looking ahead at round ten, um, there's a few that have, uh, with all the tips that have come in so far, the people that tip early. Um, uh, a lot of people are um, going for Adelaide over West Coast, almost sixty forty. Um, and I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that um, the majority are tipping Fremantle over Brisbane. Fremantle have really gone off the boil a bit, and Brisbane are. 
looking pretty sharp, and uh, we've got 60-40 split there as well for Fremantle um, over Brisbane. So it'll be interesting to see. I reckon that's a flip of the coin game, that one. Yeah, big time. Hey, we have run out of time. Uh, we're going to have to wrap it up. But before we go, please make sure to subscribe uh, so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And don't forget to rate us five stars. We do read the reviews. But we'll speak to you in the next one. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL podcast.